0: Lead. and thank you all for coming back. Last week we had the joy of talking about money, and you can always, that's always a blessing. You start talking about people's money and all that, and you find out the next week who the real troopers are, who the real committed folk are. I'm no, just, just kidding. But uh, We've uh, we committed to preach the whole counsel of God's Word, and uh, whether that's encouraging, convicting, challenging, confronting, whatever that is to us, that's okay. That's okay. God's Word is good, and. Uh, it, it, he, he is worthy of it and and every our desire is that every area every aspect of our lives would be lived in submission to God's word and that is the challenge for us is submitting our ourselves and our lives to God's word you know it's 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 only submission when you disagree you know if, if we're in agreement well that's that's called agreement you know I, I, I talked to you know submission oftentimes is, is relegated to to women and things like that, but guys, we're all in submission. Every single believer in here is in submission to Jesus Christ. He is Lord over all. He is Lord over every area of our lives. And, uh, you know, when Karen and I agree on things, that's called agreement. It's when we disagree on things and she hasn't followed me, it's called submission, and that's when it gets hard because uh, sometimes we disagree and uh, we have to make tough decisions. But we are going to seek to submit our lives to the full counsel, the fullness of God's Word, no matter what it is. And uh, we have walked through First Corinthians, and, and we've kept up a, a good pace, but I feel like we've been fair to the text. Pray for me. I believe we're going to start uh, Titus uh, next week. We'll go from a 16-chapter book to a 3-chapter book. So uh, we'll, we'll try to be balanced here. That should only take us about six weeks, so uh, um, we'll uh, we'll be more in line with where everybody's. People say people can't pay attention to these long studies. I think y'all paid attention, all right. I think y'all have anyway. My wife has paid attention. At least one person's paid attention, so uh, it has been good. This study at First Corinthians has been good. It has been challenging, as I said. There there have been parts of this book where I will admit to you, um, the Lord has confronted me. And in, in what I thought I knew, the passage said, what I thought I knew it was teaching. And that's good. That's good. Because I, I don't want to think wrongly about the Word of God. I, I want to think rightly. And, and Paul is, in chapter 16, he is bringing this letter to a close. He's giving some some closing remarks, if you will. He's, he's, he's sealing, he's about to seal this letter, and, and he's about to send it on to the church, and and he gives them some closing remarks, and and he gives us some closing remarks. And again, this chapter is very, very practical, very practical closing remarks. Last week it was on stewardship of our, our money, and really today, if you were to sum it up, it's a stewardship of our lives, stewardship of our lives. Paul is really calling us here to steward our lives. He's encouraging them. He's applauding them. He's really giving some closing remarks, and he's giving us some principles. And and he says here, uh, just to to tell you what I'm going to tell you, I love the way he says, be devoted to ministry. They devoted themselves for ministry to the saints. You know, if you could sum up what a church should be about, in many ways it would be that right there group of people that were devoted to one another. First of all, devoted to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, but then because of that devoted to one another. As we'll see later, that word in some translations is is translated can be translated addicted. They were addicted to the Lord and they were addicted to one another. I mean, If if we were going to have an addiction, that would be a good addiction to have right there. Cannot stop serving their Lord and one another Enough. He's going to tell us to be alert, to stand firm. Very, very practical things that I want to unfold today in, in our time as we close out this letter. And I, and I hope it'll be challenging. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't want us to ever be afraid of, of of challenging one another, of of me saying the hard things. If you're uncomfortable with what's said, if you're uneasy with how, with where your life is, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. If my life is out of line is out of whack, is out of accord with the Word of God. I want the Holy Spirit to bring me back. Romans 2, 4 says it's His kindness, it's His patience that leads us to repentance. There's areas of all our lives that we need to be repentant of, that we need to to turn away from the things of this world and turn back to the Lord. And I think we'll see some of those today. And really, this is a summation of what we as a church... If we as a church were to be anything... I pray that we would start by living out what he says here, that we would be a people that exhibit these characteristics. When people come visit us, when we go out into the world, that these characteristics would be all about our life. That these characteristics would just overflow in our life. And it's interesting, he's going to sum it up at the end of this and remind us of something we've seen over and over again. We saw it in... First Corinthians 8, 1 Corinthians 8.1, he said, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. We saw it in, in chapter 13 where he says, hey, I can do all these things, but if I don't do it with love, it's useless. And more than anything, what ought, sum, what ought to be a summation, a characteristic of us, it's a love for the Lord and a love for others. If I could drill it down for what I would desire, not only our church to be, but any church, it would be two things, love God, love others. Love God, love others. And that's what we're going to see today. And and in closing, Paul is going to give us a couple of principles that I want to touch on. Last week, again, he gave us some some principles regarding stewardship of our finances. And today, he's going to give us some principles for ministry and some principles for working. And that's where I want to start today in in verse 5. Some principles for ministry. Principles for ministry. Paul really kind of lays out some, some objectives, some of his some of his work habits, some of his ethics, and his ministry. And and ministry is hard work. If, if you've given your life to the Lord and you desire to do ministry, ministry is hard work. God has not called us to an endeavor that the world wants, that the world desires, that the world is, is friendly to. Our message and the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, that he's the way, the truth, and the life, the world does not want any part of that. The world wants to get to their, to the same objective, their ways, their means and the Bible says that's not the way it is. The only way to be forgiven of your sin, the only way to have eternal life in heaven, the only way to be redeemed, cleansed of our sin problem is through the blood of Jesus Christ. It's very exclusive. It is a road that has one name above it and the name is Jesus. Any other road it leads to eternal hell. Eternal separation from God. Any other road. If you're seeking to do it by good works, if you're seeking to be good enough, if you're hoping your good outweighs your bad, if you're seeking to, to make much of any other name other than Jesus Christ, you're going to miss it. Paul has made that very clear, and I want to make that very clear. And for that reason, ministry is hard work. We, we're at war. The Bible is very clear. We are at war. As believers, we are at war between our, our flesh and our spirit are at war. We're at war in a world that is in totally opposition to Christ and, and the message of the cross. We're in a war of, of are we going to do things God's ways? Are we going to do things our ways every day in our families, in our personal lives, in our, in our marital relationships, and raising our kids? Constant war. Constant battle. God's ways or our ways? The way of the cross or the way of the world? Wisdom according to the cross or wisdom according to this world? That's the battle we're in. And, and so how do we how do we handle ourselves as, as we fight the good fight? That, that's what Paul is laying down here. Some principles uh, of ministry. Some principles of, of doing ministry well. Uh, of, of being a good soldier. He, he's telling us here how he ministers His life in the midst of great opportunity, but what we'll see is for every opportunity there was much opposition. We've seen already, Paul's life was one spent in opposition, shipwrecks, beatings, imprisonments. It was not a fun thing for Paul in the sense of his flesh, it was a hard ministry. He says in 1 Timothy three twelve, I think it is, or Second Timothy, for those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's war. It's war. So how do we how do we fight? Well, there are some lessons here that Paul gives us so that we would be effective ministers, and that's what I want us to see today. And there's at least there's probably more, but there's about four observations in, in verses five through twelve that I want to see. And the first one is in verses five through nine that Lee read, and it's this. In order to minister well, we must make plans to minister to others. We must make plans to minister to others. And and that's going to sound, I'm sure some of you think, well, that makes sense. Well, the problem is, if we're honest, we don't plan to minister a lot of times. If we're honest, we make a lot of plans that revolve around ourselves, not a lot of plans that revolve around others. We fill our lives full of stuff that revolve around us, And when opportunities come up to minister, we have nothing left to minister to others with. Whether that be our money, whether that be our time, whether that be our gifts, whether that be our talents. I mean, if we're honest, we're very good at spending our lives and exhausting our lives on ourselves. And that's why Paul makes it very clear. If you're going to minister well, you've got a plan to minister. It's got to be a priority He says you have to make sure you have to steward your life so that you're allowed to be ministered to others. That's what Paul is saying. Ministry begins with the stewardship of my life and the stewardship of your life that allows us to minister to others. It's not a a life that's, that's, it's not anything, it was nothing accidental about ministry. Paul did not stumble into ministry. He made ministry a priority. I heard a, a good friend of mine, Jeff Teague, one time we were talking, and, and he said this it, a good minister has got to be put in planned neglect. There's gonna be some things that I'm gonna to have to purposefully neglect in order to be a good, faithful minister. And you see this in you see this in your in your schooling you, of your kids, you see it in sports. These guys that are these elite athletes, they did not become elite athletes by being entangled with all the things that their other friends were in. No, they were in the gym working out. They were hitting tennis balls. They were hitting golf balls when other people were out partying and fooling around. When other people were just hanging out at the house, you know what? They were disciplined to be doing what they knew to be doing. They planned on it. They didn't become elite accidentally. And, and we will not be effective ministers accidentally. We have to organize our lives so that we can be used. I mean, look what Paul says in verse 5. He says, But I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter, so that you may send me on my way wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time if the Lord permits. But I will remain at Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door of effective service is open to me, for there are many adversaries. I'm exhausted just reading about his travel schedule. And again, he didn't just get in the van and set the cruise control and turn the DVD on for the kids. This was hard ministry. This is hard labor. He made it a purpose. He, he was content, and yet he was working to further the kingdom of God. He didn't rest on his past successes. He wasn't demoralized by his past failures. He kept pushing forward. He kept fighting. Look with me at 2 Timothy 4 through 7. 2 Timothy 2, 4 through 7. Uh, Talking about a planned neglect, this is a great passage for discipline and planned neglect. Look at this. He says, No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life, so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Also, if anyone competed as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding and everything. He's saying, look, if a soldier understands the battle that's at hand, he doesn't get entangled with the things of everyday life. He has a way, a fight, a war to fight. I remember when Jim Hampton came home, sitting down and talked with him. He was telling me that he was having a very hard time relaxing. Why? Because for that period of six, seven, eight months, for 24 hours a day, he was concerned about being killed. He was in a war. And even when he was at the, at the barracks, whenever they were, there was a constant threat of people shooting at them. Constant threat of people bombing them. And, and that's what Paul is saying. You, they didn't entangle themselves in the things of everyday life. They had a war to fight Christians, we have a war to fight. The soldier never stops fighting. The athlete never stops training. The farmer never stops farming. Otherwise, what? Weeds are going to take over his crop and they're going to die. And and, and that's the same with us. That's the way of life it is for us believers. We have to steward our lives knowing that we are at war. That we are constantly at war. That there is constantly a battle raging within us for our affections, for our allegiance, for our attention, for our resources, for our time. All of that has to be stewarded with the fact that we're at war. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 5, he says, Be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity. He says why? Because the days are evil. What does he mean by that? He means before you know it, the days have gotten away from you and you haven't accomplished the things that you ought to have They're evil in that sense. We've all been guilty of of wasting time and wasting days and and wasting years. Earlier in this book, he says, hey, by now, many of you ought to be way more mature than you are, but you're not. I I couldn't come to you as spiritual men. I had to come to you as infants. You've been a Christian for a long time. You haven't grown. Why? Because you haven't been very disciplined. You haven't understood the fight that's at hand. And, and everything for us is done under the realization that we're at war and it needs to be done carefully and we are to steward our lives so that we can be effective ministers. And literally, I heard this, this definition of, of stewardship. And, it's this, of, of this and it says stewardship or our ministry is this. It's stewarding your life so that God can give you away. Organizing your life in such a way that God can give you away. That's, that's the Christian life. Arranging my life, arranging everything involved in my life, my time, my free time, my resources, <coughs> stewarding that so that God can give me away. It's not not thinking of self, it's thinking of Christ. It's understanding the mission to seek and save the lost. It's understanding that I've been commissioned to be a good soldier of the Lord Jesus Christ, that in the future there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness. It's not for today. It's after we've fought the good fight. Paul says, after that, there's a crown laid up. For right now, your job is to fight. Right now, your job is to train. Your job is to be this, look, you've got all eternity to enjoy the spoils. But right now, our job is to fight. And and Satan is very good at lulling us into forgetting that we're at war. Of lulling us into, into to being sleepy. And not to be effective into thinking, oh, we've got plenty of time. I can do that to my... No, no, no. Organize your life plan to be an effective minister. So, so the application there would be this. Do, do you have a plan to share Christ with people? Are you actively praying about names of people that you might share the gospel with? Do you, do you set aside resources, time, talents, treasures, whatever it is, to devote to people who might have a need? Do you organize your life in a way? Do you set aside time that says, look, I'm going to use this to to devote, to devote to other people? Do you set aside money? Do you set aside your talents? Do you plan? Do you plan to be an effective minister? Paul was a planner. That's probably, I was kidding my wife yesterday. I said, Karen, you're going to love parts of this sermon. You're going to like the first point. You're going to hate the second point. My wife is a planner. If you want to know what we're doing, you talk to Karen. I don't have a clue what we're doing. But she'll know. She's got about four calendars all over the house, no matter what room she's in. If you call her, there's a calendar around. And she'll tell you. She's a planner. But not only was Paul a planner, secondly, the, the principle is this. The first one was planned to be an effective minister. The second thing we learned from Paul is this. Submit your plans and desires to Christ. Paul made plans, but he submitted those plans to Christ. And see, that can be very difficult for some of us. Paul was not rigid with his plans. Look look at the language that he says here. Look at verse 6. He says, perhaps I'll stay with you. Look at verse 6 as well. He says, wherever I go. Look look at verse 7. He says, I hope to remain with you. There was nothing definitive about it. He made plans, but his plans were open to the Lord changing those plans. That's what I'm trying to say. Make plans. But submit those plans to the Lord. Don't be so rigid that those things can't get changed. Some of us, some of us, if we're honest, get real angry when our plans get changed or interrupted. We've made the plans, we put it in our book, some of y'all are smiling, elbowing people. I'm telling you, we, we love making plans. It's the problem is those plans, we don't submit those plans to the Lord. See, the Lord has greater wisdom. He he knows He knows far more than I do. Make your plans. Proverbs says, the man makes his plans, but the Lord directs his steps. Submit those plans to the Lord. Paul made plans that were sensitive to the leading and guiding and directing of the Holy Spirit. And and the question for us becomes, how will we deal with interruptions? How well do we deal with interruptions? Do do we see his interruptions as, as possible opportunities? But we have to submit our plans to the Lord. Look at James 4. very clear picture of this. Look at James 4. Paul had plans that he wanted to accomplish, but he was always making sure that he had submitted those to the Lord. It was doing what he felt the Lord had called him to do. He says, come now, you who say. This is in a section where people were bragging and boasting that they had everything figured out. And he says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. He says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we'll live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and such boasting is evil. To, to think that we know God and we know what tomorrow holds and we've got it figured out and to think that we know better than God, he says that's boastful, it's arrogant, and it's evil. We ought to plan, but we have to surrender those plans to the Lord. And, and Paul himself was a, was a big example of this. You know, and I'm not saying, I don't think that passage is saying we have to say that phrase every time. It was a disposition of the heart. You don't have to say it every time, and if I don't say it, you don't have to repeat it to me. I, I get it. But it's a disposition of the heart. You know your heart. You, you know whether you've submitted your plans to the Lord. You know the reason why you've made your plans. You know what you hope to accomplish. But he's, what he's, he's saying is, I'm not so rigid, my plans aren't so rigid that the Lord can't interrupt. Look at Philippians 1.12. You want to talk about interruption? How about prison? Paul had made plenty of plans, and in Philippians 1, 12-14, he finds himself in prison. Look what he says. There was a lot of, there was a lot of struggle over, hey, this is God's guy, and he's in prison. What's going on? Does that, does that mean God's not on him? Does that mean God's not with him? Does that mean he's out of God's will? He says, now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well-known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and everyone else. And that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. The interruption was prison, and Paul says, I use that interruption for the glory of God. God put me here. God allowed my plans to be interrupted, interrupted my plans, and put me in prison. Why? For the glory of the gospel. And he says, Many, many, many have heard the gospel because I'm sitting in jail. Who would not have heard it and he said, hey, that's cool. Later on, you'll see in that chapter that Paul says, hey, there are many people who were taking advantage of the fact that he was in prison. Many people that were maligning him. Many people that were that were distorting things about him. And he says, hey, I don't care what they do as long as God's glorified. I don't care what they do as long as the gospel is progressed. I, I want to be like that. Because I can tell you, when people are maligning me and saying false things about me, my initial reaction is, hey, as long as God's glorified. That's not my initial reaction. I'm just being honest. And, and Paul, Paul had a lot of interruption in his life. He made plans, but he, 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 with, he withstood a lot of interruptions. But he always used them for God's glory. So, so the application for us is how well do you handle interruptions? How well do you handle when things in your house break? How well do you handle when, when things don't go as planned? Do you see them as opportunities? Or do you see them as interruptions to your plans? Do you see them as opportunities to maybe share the gospel with a a worker or a a handyman or somebody to come and fix something that you would have never otherwise met? Or do you see it as just an interruption to your selfish plans? Sometimes we're so rigid in our plans, God has to interrupt our plans to get a hold of us. We become so selfish with them. So it's okay to make plans, but we have to submit those plans to the Lord. He's wiser. He's smarter. His perspective is so much greater than ours, and sometimes he interrupts our plans for the greater good. But not only that, not only that, opposition, another principle we see is this. Opposition doesn't mean that we are outside of God's desires. Because you face opposition, it does not mean that God is with you. And oftentimes it means quite the contrary. And you see that in verse nine, he says, "For a wide door of effective service is open to me, and there are many adversaries." Wonderful, wonderful opportunity came with tremendous opposition, and that's generally the way it is with the Word of God. Generally, it is in your in your life. Satan is not thrilled. With a wonderful opportunity for the gospel And guess what? Much opposition Much opposition And and opportunity, hear me Opportunity always comes with opposition Opportunity always Comes with opposition When when God pours out his blessing Satan tends to send adversaries To try to destroy that work Or to thwart that work or discourage that work There will always be opposition To what God is doing Again, why? Because we're at war We're at war And and it is important to recognize that, again, Ephesians 6, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. We have a greater struggle than that. There is a constant battle being waged at all times for our allegiance, for our affections, for our devotion, for our loyalty. And Satan is our adversary. The Bible says he's a liar, he's a murderer, he's a thief. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. We have an adversary. And your opposition, my opposition, does not mean that we're outside of God's will. The reality is, as I've said in 2 Timothy 3.12, it might mean that you're right where God wants you to be. It might mean that you're swimming upstream for the Lord instead of just casually floating downstream like the world and the culture. Opposition does not mean that we're not where God wants us. Please hear that. And Paul teaches us that in verse 9. So the question would be this. How well do you deal with opposition? Are you easily easily turned away from what you feel like God has called you to do? Are you easily discouraged? Are you you quick to throw in the towel? Many of you have walked through health complications. Your family right now are walking through health complications. Relational? Are you committed? Or do you turn away easily? There will be opposition. Why? Because we're in war. Satan will make sure there's opposition. If, you, if we as a church, if you as an individual, live for the Lord, trust me, there will be opposition. There will be opposition. And another principle is this, in 10 through 12, a principle for ministry is this, we do not minister alone. Please, please, please hear this one. We do not minister alone. Paul, Paul begins here by talking about Timothy, by talking about Apollo's, He's going to name, after this, he's going to name five more uh, individuals that he worked with. And we must recognize, we must recognize how important other believers are to our ministry and God's kingdom. Other believers. We don't minister alone. This is a team effort. This is a group effort. Paul, Paul in no way tries to take all the credit. He names about seven people here that are serving the Lord, that he's quick to give um, credit to. He didn't minister alone. If Paul didn't minister alone, what about us? And we've seen this already. Turn back to 1 Corinthians 3, verses 5 through 9. Paul says in verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 3, What then is Apollos, and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believe. even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted Apollos' water, but God caused the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers and you are God's field, God's building. We minister together. We've seen this in chapter 12. We're a body. We need each other. We need each other. That's why we need to be unified with each other. That's why we need to make sure we have a good relationships with one another. Why? Because we need each other. We're a body. Uh, other believers are our fellow workers in ministry. Whether they're in this church or in another church, they're our fellow workers. Uh, other believers are not our enemies. Other churches are not, are not the opposition. We're, we're not in competition with other churches. We're all working together. We have one goal, and that is to glorify Christ, to share the gospel, that God sent His one and only Son, that whosoever would call upon the name of the Lord would be saved. That He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. And later on in that 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, we beg you, we beg you to receive this gospel. That's what I'm doing every Sunday, is begging you. ...to receive the gospel. If you've not received the gospel, I'm begging you to. If you have, I'm begging you to live for it. Begging you to make much of it. You look at chapter 4, and he says the same thing in verses 6 and 7 about, about partnership. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sake, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that none of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other, for who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? He said, we're in it together. We're in this thing together. We rise and we fall together as a body. And and it's interesting, again, Apollos is mentioned here. Paul and Apollos were pitted against each other in the first four chapters of this book. They had their supporters. Paul had his supporters. Apollos had his They were pitted, and here Paul is saying, Hey, even the man that you think was against me, receive him when he comes to you. We're we're partners. We're in this together. Satan would have loved to have divided them. He would have loved to have had his adversaries, and Paul wouldn't let it happen. He wouldn't let it happen. There was no rivalry. There was no competition. Why? Because they could be singularly focused on the gospel. They could be singularly focused on the fact that man is a sinner separated from God, and God sent His only Son to die so that we could be reconciled. For that reason, Paul said, we put all these differences aside. And we'll pursue one gospel. One gospel. And, and, and the, the application of this would be, would be gratitude. Are, are you grateful for what God's done in your life? Do you take credit for God's grace, or do you, do you give God the credit for grace? Do you act like you're you're big and bad or do you just tell the world how big and bad our God is and how much He's doing in your life? Big difference. Do, Do you see other Christians at other churches as teammates or do you see them as opposition? We're one body. One universal church. All the churches, solid theological churches that are focused on this gospel that this Bible gives we're together, we're one. We're not we're not opposition. So those are Paul's principles for ministry. If we're gonna do ministry well individually and even as a church, we've got a plan to make it happen. We've got to submit those plans to God and allow him to change them if he so desires. We've got to be ready to face opposition and we've got to be ready to minister together. Together. No Lone Rangers. Principles for ministry. If we're gonna if we're gonna minister well. That's what we have to do. But not only principles for ministry, he also closes here in verses 13 through 24 with principles of community. He said, let me give you some closing remarks about your individual community. I've given you a big picture, but individually, this group of believers, the church at Corinth, what are some principles for your community? What what are some some characteristics? What are some things that if you're going to thrive as a church... Just some closing remarks that you that have to be in place if we're going to thrive as a church. And, and the first thing he says in verse 13 is we must be loyal to the gospel. Loyal to the gospel. You say, well, well, why do you? That sounds a little odd, Chris. Well, the reality is our tendency is to get saved by the gospel and then go live by something <coughs> else. Our tendency is to get saved by grace and then assume that we live the rest of our life by, by our own strength. I was saved by the gospel, and I live my Christian life by the gospel. I was saved by the power of the gospel. I live by the power of the gospel. And there are some characteristics here of what that looks like, that Paul says a church ought to be described this way. And I pray that we would be described the way that Paul describes them in verses 13 and 14. Because guess what? We're going to have quarrels. We're going to have disagreements. We're going to have opportunities to fight. We're going to have opportunities to be divided. And Paul is saying, look, in the Corinthian church they were there, and in our church today in Odessa, they're going to be there. And he says, this is how you fight them. You be loyal to the gospel that you receive. You realize that you would be in nothing were it not for the gospel. And, And look what he says. Look what he says. He says, first, be on the alert. Be on the alert, verse 13. That, that is a command saying to look out for division. Literally stand your post and look out for division. Be on the alert. Paul is telling them to be watchful. To be watchful, why? Because you're in a war. You're in a war. But And, and, and the, the danger that we face as churches, it's from inside and outside. And oftentimes the way that Satan wants to disrupt what God is doing... Oftentimes, the danger comes from inside the church. Most of our problems are are, are us. It's us. Fighting, quarreling, not forgiving, holding things against people. 1 Peter 5.8 says that, that, that Satan is, a, is like a roaring lion, prowling around looking for someone to devour. It's inside the church and outside. Paul said, be on the alert. Be on the alert. And it's not only the immediacy of being on the alert, it's also looking forward to Christ's coming. All throughout the Gospels, we'll see, we're, you'll see God commanding them to be alert, to be watchful, to not let their lamps burn out, to wait. 1 John 2.28 says that, that when He returns, I pray that He will find us being faithful. Be on the alert, that no matter when Christ returns, we'll be ready. Be on the alert, looking out for the dangers that are that are seeking to destroy us. But not only that, he says, stand firm in the faith. This is a military term, and literally what he's what he's commanding. He's saying, hold your ground, hold your ground. Do not give up the territory that God has given. Hold your ground, believer. Keep pursuing, but hold your ground. Do not retreat. And this phrase, stand firm, has really bookend. This whole chapter in, in verse uh, fifteen in one and two he says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached, which you also received, in which you stand. You stand. And then in verse 58, look what he says, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. We stand, be standing firm. Stand firm. We have an enemy, we this is a battle. Stand firm, do not give an inch. Do not retreat, do not give an inch. Not only that, he says, act like men, be strong. Act like men and be strong. This right here, in the original language, it was a call to courage. That's what that phrase means. It's a call to be courageous. Courageous. And and you look at that in the Old Testament, it was a call to be courageous in the face of danger, especially one's enemies. And Paul is saying, you get your strength from the Lord. The word strengthened there is passive, meaning this, it's not you, it's the Lord strengthening you. That's why John 15, 5, 1 through 5, he says, without apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Nothing. We get our strength from the Lord. He's our refuge. He's our shelter. This isn't, this isn't, you know, let go and let God. We get our strength from God that we pursue. We pursue it. These are commands. And lastly, he says, let all that that you do be done in love. Paul says this multiple times. In verse 14, he says it. In verse 24, he says, my love be with you all in Christ. In chapter 13, he says, whatever you do, that if you give yourself on the cross, if you have prophecy, if you have the gift of tongues, but if you don't do it with love, he says it's worthless. <clears throat> love ought to be a distinguishing characteristic of any group of believers. Of the love that we have for one another. Apart from that, everything is meaningless. And, and that word, that word, look at what he says. All that you do be done in love. You think about everything that we've seen in this chapter the, the quarrels, the, the ending relationships, the lawsuits. The, the, all the stuff, that if they just loved each other. If they just loved each other. And, and if the church would do all things in love, these other things that we've seen wouldn't happen. That That's the reality for a church. The problem is not the thing that we think the problem is. The problem oftentimes is simply a lack of love. It's a lack of love. And, and that's what Paul is building to, because in, in, he gives us evidences... Of maturity. maturity. You want to know what maturity in the gospel looks like? Verses 14 through 24 give those. Six outpourings of just an evidence of maturity in the gospel. Six things that mark what our lives ought to be, ought to be about. And the first thing he says is service. Service. You want to know whether you're mature or not? Look at your service. He, he says... Now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanas, that they were the first fruits of Achaia, and they were devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints, so that you also be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. Service. They labored. They worked. They had given themselves over to selflessly serving. The Corinthians. They had given themselves up for it. They had stewarded their lives in a way that God could give them away. And again, this is that word devoted. Like I said, in in the King James, it says addicted. They were addicted to ministry. They couldn't get enough of it. And and imagine imagine a church that was addicted to ministry. Imagine a church that couldn't help themselves but love one another, couldn't help but serve one another, the impact that that would have in the world, couldn't help but seeking and saving the lost. That that you were turning people away when you had ministry opportunities. Think about that, church. You know, Lee, Lee shared this summer, we we, we typically do a, a little different schedule during the summer, and this summer I, I want us to do some serve projects that we're not going to meet every Wednesday again like we have. But we're going to do some serve projects each month, and, and this one was Soul hope. I, I hope we'll get involved in that. I hope that we'll get rally around that on that Wednesday night. In, in July, we're going to get together and do some things to take down the Jesus de Pesitos. In August... I think it's August 2nd, Lee gave you the date, we're gonna go down to the to the Sheriff's Youth Ranch. You know, I, I made a contact with a guy and I wasn't sure, I was not familiar with the Sheriff's Youth Ranch was, but it actually, I think in my own mind, I thought that it was for kids who had been in trouble with the law. The Sheriff's Youth Ranch is actually a home that it is a group foster home. It is a group foster home where they take siblings, instead of separating them, they keep them together at this home until they can find a home for that for those siblings to stay together in and be adopted. There's 30 kids at this at this Florida Sheriff's Youth Branch, and there's six families. What was amazing to me, there are six families, and they alternate every week. So every there's three there's three husband and wife couples that go there for an entire week and live with these kids, and they're responsible for 10 of them. And every week it changes. So every other week, these family uproots their life and goes and commits to these 10 kids. So I called him and asked him, and he said that the greatest challenge they have is helping these kids to feel normal. To, to understand, and he says, they have no understanding why anyone would come here and love on them. So i want to go love them. I'm going to go spend a Saturday and just have a fun day playing with them, loving on them. Loving on those families who committed their lives to loving on these kids. We're going to do some stuff in the, in the small groups, but service. It ought to be the mark of a mature church is service. And we've got plenty of other stuff going on this summer, but service. I hope that we will be committed to these things. Not only that, submissiveness. Not only service, but submissiveness. That they would subject themselves. He says that you would subject yourselves to the leaders. Hebrews thirteen seventeen talks about that subjecting yourselves to people who watch over you. You know, there, there's no indication that 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 Stephanus was this high ranking officer or church officer. He was an ordinary Christian, but he had extraordinary love, of and God used them. We need to be in subjection to one another, submitting our lives first to Jesus, but then secondly to one another to serve, to serve. You want to know if you're mature? How's your service? How's your submission? Not only that, friendship. Friendship. You you see that in all these names. I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have supplied what is lacking on your part. They have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore acknowledge such men. These men were used in a great way in Paul's life. And and I just sat there and asked the question. Anybody that would say that about us? Anybody that would say that about you? Anybody that says, hey, such and such refreshes my spirit. What do people people say about us when 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 we're on campuses with our kids? When we're at work? Do we refresh or do we exhaust? Do do you energize people or do you zap people's strength? Christians ought to be energizing. When when, when I enter a room, when you enter a room, there ought to be more joy than there was before we got there. There ought to be peace and love. There ought to be a fragrance of Christ all about us. When, you, when we arrive, is the place better. Or when we leave, is the place better. Like, man, couldn't wait to get rid of them. Paul says they refreshed. They refreshed his spirit. He says acknowledge such men. Is there, if there's somebody in your life that has done that for you, do you acknowledge them? You send them a note say, hey, you encourage me. You challenge me. I'm better for having known you," he says. Acknowledge them. Write a note. So you have submission and service and friendship. Not only that, you have hospitality. Hospitality. Uh, Aquila and Priscilla are mentioned here in verse 19. Greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. It's interesting. According to the New Testament, this couple lived in three different cities: Corinth, Ephesus, and Rome. And in every city. They formed a house church in their home. Every city they went to, they opened up their home and there was a church there. They stewarded their lives in order to God to give them away. Not only that, it was their house that Paul stayed at in his first first visit. Probably for more than a year and a half it's possible that Paul stayed in their house. Hospitality. You, You go to chapter 12 of Romans, talking about the one another... He says in verse 13, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. That word practicing literally means pursuing opportunities to be hospitable. Actively pursuing They opened up their home for a year and a half. And they did it everywhere they went. Uh, And and we have some home Bible studies going on here, and I would encourage you, you're, you're free to start them. Probably no better place for ministry to happen than in the Christian home. Starting with you, mom and dad, but also you opening up your home and bringing other Christians in. Phenomenal place for ministry to take place. Love, acceptance, and all these characteristics that we're talking about today. The best place for it to happen? In a home. In a home. In a small group. But there was also affection. Affection. All the brethren greet people. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Now try that one off for application. Let's apply now. We're not going to apply that one. There's an application. There's an application here. Unless it's your mother or your wife or your kids. No, the, the point is this. Imagine what would not be going on if you were going to greet somebody with a holy kiss. Bickering, fighting, quarreling, competition. All the things that we, that we battle with and that the church of Corinth battled with. And it was a remedy. It was a reminder that they were family. It was a reminder that they were in this together. And, and the question becomes, well, where did that go? There are some. There are still some cultures that greet each other on, with a kiss on the cheek. But what, what about the church? The, the bigger question is, where did the affection go in the church? And, and the, the bigger we get, the, when the church moved out of homes and, and meets very corporately and and and, and that's fine, but the challenge becomes to still be affectionate. The challenge becomes to still be have intimate relationships with people, to be fond of people, not just show up and leave. The challenge becomes, when we meet corporately like this, to to maintain deep relationships. And if we're honest, we probably don't know half the people in here. That's why we do things like Fellowship 3. That's why we do these serve projects. Not only to serve them, but to serve us. To come alongside the body of Christ and do things together. That's why we meet on Wednesdays. That's why we meet today. It's to come together to encourage one another. It's about the one another's. It's about intimacy. It's about affection. And the the key is not... in. It could be a handshake. It could be a hug. You don't have to kiss somebody on the cheek. But the, the gesture is the intimacy. What's behind the gesture is intimacy. It's fondness. It's affection. It's it's being genuinely warm. the time of the greeting, are we genuinely warm? Are you just going through the motions? Do you seek out to meet new faces? Or do we just go to the same people that we we know? Every day we see new faces here. I I try to go to those new faces and and introduce them. We all need to be doing that. Affection. A, A mature body of believers will be affectionate to one another. And it will all flow out of this. We understand the great love that the Lord has showered upon us at the cross. We understand that though we were enemies of the cross, that God sent His Son to die on the cross to pay the penalty that I deserve to pay and you deserve to pay for our sins. That He loved us at the very moment that we least deserved to be loved. And it makes no sense if we as believers can receive that love but refuse to give that love if we can receive forgiveness for our sins, though they were vast, but yet we refuse to forgive one another for their sins when they would pale in comparison to what our sins to the Lord did. You will never offend me the way that I've offended the Lord. Your sin against me will never amount to the deficit, to the debt that my sin was to the Lord, and yet He forgave me. He sent His Son to die on the cross. And by faith, by the grace of God, I've received that. And I pray that you have. But I pray that you don't just receive it, that you give it out. Because the ultimate issue here for Paul, the ultimate issue for us, it's not obedience, it's love. It's a lack of love. The number one thing that will kill a church is a lack of love, not only for the Lord, but for one another. It's a lack of love. You go to Ephesians Ephesians 2 with Ephesus. They have forgotten their first love. It's, it's maintaining that love. And then Paul says, if you do that, you're to be accursed. If you turn away from this gospel, if you distort this gospel, if you do not love the Lord, you will be accursed. Period. Strong word. Strong word there. Excluded. Excluded. Not only from heaven, but from the fellowship. And the opposite of this is Maranatha. That word means come Lord, our Lord come. What we're waiting patiently for, what we're doing all this for, is we desire our Lord to come back and take us home. This is not our home, Philippians 3. Our citizenship is not here on earth, it is in heaven. And we are to be good soldiers, we are to be disciplined while we wait for our Lord to return. And, And I pray, I pray that when he returns, we'll be faithful. I pray that when he returns, he will find us taking these things to heart, that we would be the church, individually and corporately. We will never corporately be more than what we are individually. Our corporate characteristic will be formed from all of our individual characteristics. If individually, if we are not all these things, corporately, we will never be all these things. And that's what Paul was saying. It starts with each one of us individually loving the Lord and loving others. Individually. It's all of our responsibility. And as we close this letter, I, I pray that we would not fall prey to what the Corinthians did in bringing outside stuff into the church. That we would keep outside stuff outside and we would be inside who we're supposed to be and then take that outside. But it starts with every single one of us individually. Individual, being the man or the woman of God that He's called us to be, and then corporately we become the church that God has called us to be. And I pray that every single one of us would 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 do that individually. That we would repent where repentance is needed. That we would obey where where maybe we're not today. That we would ask the Lord to do in us that which is being called for us to do and be. That if we're short on any of these things, that we would ask the Lord to do it in us. Not pull up your bootstraps, some morality. Ask the Lord to do it in you. To do it in you and through you so it's sustainable and real. And if you're here today and you do not have a personal, you're not confident that you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that you've had your sins forgiven. I'm telling you, I'm begging you, don't leave